Well, um, a very warm welcome to everyone to our first panel session um, on this first day of the conference. The, my name is Chris Baird. I am a partner with the global firm DLA Piper, and I head up our Africa desk for M&A and private equity in Africa. Um, our panel session today is uh, Then and Now, Reflections on Private Capital in Africa. On our panel, if I can start from my right, we have Nicholas Vickery. Nicholas is the global head of private equity funds at IFC. Moving down, we then have Luke Rigozul. Luke is the co-founder and managing partner of Athemus. We then have Tokombo Ishmael. Tokombo is the co-founder and managing director of Alithia. <laughs> I can just about see you all down there. <laughs> then we have Ziad. Ziad Wislati is the co-founding partner and managing director of Africa Invest. And on the very end, we have Clarissa DeFranco. Clarissa is the managing director and head of private equity funds at British International Investment, previously CDC. I'm not the first moderator to say that I think we're at a reflection point, but genuinely in this industry, we now have three decades of a track record. We hopefully are coming through some of the deep uncertainty of COVID. And if you look at Avka's report for private capital this year, fundraising is up and deals are up. So I. I can't see a better time than now to make some reflections and to see where we are as an industry. And maybe to start, Clarissa and Nicholas, I could come to you guys for a bit of an LP perspective, but also from a bit of a uh, DFI perspective. And Clarissa, if I can start with you, clearly the DFI community have been cornerstone investors in our African private equity from the outset. You've provided capital when, when there was very little. I'd love to hear your reflections on the journey so far, being such a significant investor. But then I'd also like to hear your take on how that's going to change in the future. Do you think that the DFIs are going to continue or should continue to be the cornerstone investors? Or do you see handing over some of that mantle to uh, more commercial investors? Um, good morning, everyone. It's great to be here and see everyone in person. Um, British International Investment has been investing in Africa since 1948, uh, primarily as a, uh, as a lender for the first 50 years, then as an equity investor, uh, and in 2004, solely as a fund investor until 2012, when we again did debt and equity. Over, um, we've very much seen the journey of private equity throughout this period, um, and really seeing the, the very early movers, uh, seeing the industry looking to mature, looking at opportunities, and seeing how that has developed. Um, there continue to be opportunities, but I think the industry, as, as was pointed out, has had some challenges. I mean, Wally talked about that. Some of the financial performance that we saw probably 20 years ago, 15 years ago, uh, has reduced in light of macroeconomic challenges, in light of a number of players coming into the industry. Um, the DFIs have played a significant role through that in terms of providing capital. One thing, Chris, that you mentioned is, you know, the DFIs were cornerstones in developing the ecosystem. And I think that served its purpose for a period of time in terms of saying, you know, who are, what, what do we want this to look like? Who are the players that exist? Um, what kind of strategies should we be pursuing? And that led to a number of us. Uh, looking at anywhere from an SME fund, uh, microfinance funds, all the way to large Pan-African managers. Um, and, the, you know, there has been uh, a variety of performance across the different types of fund managers. Uh, the other important thing that's probably happened is with regards to the role that ESG has played. So Africa is probably the most advanced when it comes to ESG processes and procedures. It's the continent that has embedded ESG professionals across the majority of its managers. And we'd argue that that is because of the relationship that's been had with the DFIs uh, and really working with managers around you know, strengthening uh, environmental, social, and governance procedures as a whole. 
Um, that served well. Uh, at points, it was probably ahead of its time, and there was a lot of questions with regards to what is the value add of having strong ESG. I think with time, we've seen that actually prove itself uh, valuable and correct. Uh, and then we probably talked about impact a lot sooner than you would have heard in other parts of the world, and it was more mainstream. And I think impact became you know, quite fashionable over the last few years, um, which also led to what does that actually mean and how do you measure impact? And we've had a lot of debates more recently around how broad do we look at impact? Uh, you know, what, is its impact the same across geographies? Is impact you know, going to be measured in the same way around job creation? Is it around specific metrics? That's still evolving. Um, and I think we need to play uh, a broader role trying to standardize what that means for Africa to actually also help GPs not have five different uh, metrics to report on with different, uh, with different investors. Um, and when we look at sectors and what's happened across geographies, um, I think overall, coming now to the more recent past, since COVID, uh, at an overall level across Africa, valuations at the end of 2021 are probably flat to Q4 2019, uh, but there is seen an improvement. And that also varies across geographies. Uh, North Africa in particular has done extremely well and is significantly above uh, what valuations were in Q4 2019. As per our portfolio, they're up by about 25%. When we look at um, you know, deals that are considered Pan-African, i.e. that have uh, um, operations across a number of African countries, they're up by 24% from a valuation perspective. Um, Morocco, sorry, correcting myself, is up 62% compared to Q4 2020 up 78% compared to Q4 2019. When we compare that um, to India, for example, uh, valuations in India are down 20% compared to Q4 2020. So significant opportunities when, when we look at what our portfolio's performance has been uh, as reported by the GPs uh, to date. I should, I should um, point that out. What's been interesting is also seeing how certain sectors have evolved over the period as well. Most recently, the top sectors, um, as, as Wally alluded to, has been ICT uh, with an increase of 21%. Also, the consumer space up by 25% and healthcare, uh, a huge uplift of 93% with regards to 2019. Um, on the other hand, certain sectors have not been recovering as quickly from the pandemic as we would have liked. Uh, as per our portfolio in the industrial space and the education space, both down by over 20%. Um, but what does that mean as we look forward? We've launched our new five-year strategy at the beginning of this year, uh, where we're focusing on really three main pillars uh, as British international investment. They're around productivity, which is strengthening uh, economic enabler and the private sector across economies. Looking at sustainability, really thinking about how do we engage uh, to combat um, the climate challenges and looking at climate finance with all of our with a target of 30% of our commitments uh, being climate finance compliant. Uh, and finally, with regards to inclusion, ensuring that we are providing capital uh, to improve one, women's economic in, uh, empowerment, and also looking at um, the more marginalized classes uh, and how do we provide capital for those that historically have not had as much capital going towards them. Um, when, when I look at our strategy for Africa Fund specifically, to the point on first-time teams, to the point around mobilization and how do we, how do we move that forward. Uh, from a mobilization point of view, we will continue to back those players that have delivered financial performance. We're going to be giving larger check sizes to those players to ensure that they continue delivering performance and that we can mobilize capital um, from commercial players across the continent uh, and also to identify co-investment opportunities with those players that we believe are delivering on both financial and impact metrics. On the other hand, it's really important to continue to develop the market and continue to back innovative strategies and first-time teams. So we will do um, innovative uh, strategies looking at promoting sectors that are up and coming, whether that's in venture capital, whether that's in specific sectors, sector-aligned um, funds, where we believe that we need to test different structures, we need to test different ways of going into the market to ensure the success and continuation of the industry.
That's great. And Nicholas, maybe while just staying on the LP side for the moment, obviously the IFC has invested enormous amounts, I think over 25 billion in, in African financial institutions and, and private equity. Similarly, you've invested in other emerging markets. So you, a bit like CDC, you have a unique position to be to take a look at the industry as a whole. I think two things. One, on a macro level, where are you seeing still some strategic potential inefficiencies in the industry and, and challenges? And then on a micro level, when you're looking at different management teams, what practices are you are you seeing there again, which which might be holding up results? And how does this all compare to other emerging markets? Um, thank you, Chris. So the, I don't know. So IFC is, um, uh, you know, we're, we're invested globally in 330 funds with 200 fund managers. Here in Africa, um, we're invested in 100 funds with 50 fund managers. And the um, uh, Takumbo was saying there's now 150 fund managers in the industry, so we're backing 50 of them. So I think many of you know us. Um, we started, um, you know, in uh, investing in Africa in the late 1990s, um, and we we were very successful. Um, our first investments in South Africa with Tom Berry, and as um, Wally reminded us, with Dick Kramer, who passed away last week. Um, uh, where uh, when he launched the first fund with uh, with our friend OK in Africa, Africa Capital Alliance was for the longest time our best performing fund in terms of return. This was a 13x net TVPI. <laughs> um, we only have two other funds in the whole history of IFC that came to uh, uh, to that sort of level, and um, and it's you know one of the one of the themes where it was very successful is. Uh, uh, Africa Capital Alliance's first fund invested in MTN Nigeria, and um, uh, and nobody expected that MTN or digital uh, or mobile penetration was going to be so big in Africa. And it's interesting because we're seeing the sort of the same phenomenon come back today with digitalization. And I'll come back to it uh, in a moment, but I do want to talk about some of the uh, the macro uh, uh, themes. So we're, um, we talk about COVID as though it's over, but at a macro level, that's not the numbers from the World Bank. So if you look at the number of countries, uh, which are, you know, where the 2021 GDP, you know, how that on a real GDP per capita, how does that compare uh, to the 2019 period? In advanced economies, there's still 60% of the countries which are below that level. Uh, in middle-income countries, it's 70%. And in uh, sort of more, what do we call them, um, more developed uh, countries, I have the exact word, um, low-income countries, it's 80% of the low-income countries which have a real GDP per capita below what it was pre-COVID. Uh, so the World Bank estimates the 100 COVID has sent 100 million more people into poverty. Uh, and in terms of number of years, it's a setback of about 10 years. Um, I think it's a, it's a sign of the resilience and the strength of the private equity industry uh, that we have in our portfolio similar numbers to what uh, Clarissa uh, pointed out, that if we look at our portfolio today, compare the valuations at the end of December 2021, and and compare it with what it, they were like for like uh, at the end of December 2019, we're up 25%. Uh, what this means is it's not just that we've overcome the COVID, we haven't as a, as a sort of global economy, but we've gone beyond that and managed to do uh, an extraordinary amount of work. Um, today, you know, the, uh, the, at a macro level, what's impacting us is what is happening in Ukraine, um, where, you know, for the first time in 30 years, uh, there's a war in Europe. And, um, and it's had an impact, of course, for people in Ukraine. And uh, I've been in touch with uh, our fund managers who are based there, one in particular, Horizon Capital, where we're invested. And I've had, uh, you know, I was lucky to meet with, uh, with Lena when uh, 
uh, when she, the, who's the, the, the woman who runs it, when she was uh, uh, in DC, the, when the war started, she was actually out of the country. So we, uh, we met up before she went back. And, um, and the human stories are just uh, incredible of resilience, courage, and how people sort of pull together. The, um, um, but the impact it's having on the rest of the world uh, is in terms of commodity supply chains. Uh, we're seeing it in um, uh, in soft commodities. So I mean, we're seeing it in hard commodities, oil and gas prices. You're all aware of. We're seeing it also in soft commodities on the agricultural space, on the production of wheat. Um, uh, Ukraine, Russia are the largest exporters of wheat in the world, and the country that imports the most wheat from uh, Russia and uh, Ukraine combined is Egypt. A third of it is for its domestic consumption. Two thirds is milled in Egypt and then exported to the rest of the continent. So this is something we're seeing all over. This is impacting every country here, and it translates into inflation um, and the um, and and the and food prices, as we know, is is hurts the uh, the, the the lowest income uh, people. So this is a uh, this is a sort of the second macro uh, impact. Uh, that we're seeing. Uh, we've also seen uh, as a third impact in the last few years, a disruption of the supply chains um, where, you know, we were relying on uh, China to manufacture a lot of the goods. Uh, we were relying on other countries to import our food, to, uh, uh, to, to get our, uh, our goods and services. And we're seeing a whole, all of this is disrupted. Um, one thing that struck us at IFC is the whole vaccine production, where you have Africa is 14% of the world population. Um, the, the production of vaccine here available for Africans is 0.1% of global supply. Um, so, uh, so one of the things IFC has been doing, including here in Senegal, is teaming up uh, with, um, uh, with, with companies in Africa that produce Afri vaccines not just to export to the rest of the world as some of the South African companies were doing, but also to produce them locally. We did this with BioNTech. We did this with Aspen in South Africa. We, we announced recently with uh, Institut Pasteur here in Senegal that we were going to be doing this. Um, but I think in terms of the trend, it's something, it's something bigger. It's uh, everyone's re-questioning where are we supplying the goods that we consume and, uh, and so this is a, a tremendous opportunity from a private equity standpoint to, uh, you know, uh, develop this theme of import substitution, as we call it. Um, uh, the, in terms of the, the main themes going forward, um, digitalization is clearly, you know, something that we've seen develop in a tremendous way over the, uh, the past two years, I think, uh, you know, Experts say we've made enough progress in two years. In the last two years, as we would have been, as it would have taken us ten years to do, uh, because of how we've become relying on, um, uh, you know, digital solutions for healthcare, for education, um, uh, but also for uh, for for payments. Um, I visited a, a yesterday a, a company we invested in called Wave, which is based here in Senegal, um, which does uh, mobile payments. Uh, they um, they have about six million users. Uh, I hadn't realized in in Senegal, you know, the ratio of cell phones to people is like 120 percent. So you all know this. You have multiple cell phones, but uh, but within this, interestingly, 70 percent of the uh, the cell phones that people have here are are smartphones. No, so not the old Nokia. Um, so this means that the, the the mobile payment system, which was reliant on this technology, I think it's called USDD, uh, which is where you sort of, you know, everyone who's used it here knows how difficult it is. Uh, everyone wants to move to a different uh, technology, which is more app-based. Um, and, um, and this is what Wave has been doing, developing as a product. And in the course of three years, they gained 80% of the market share uh, here. And um, they're number one in Senegal, they're number two in Côte d'Ivoire. And so this is the sort of solutions that we're seeing um, where there's, it's creating opportunities uh, for, um, uh, for, for, uh, for, for new types of investments, new ways of, uh, of doing business. Um, and then the, uh, the, the sort of the third uh, 
uh, area of opportunity is, uh, uh, is also in what we call the greening the economy. We all need to do it. Um, and, the, um, and, and there's a, you know, at the level of the continent, it's, uh, it's a question of, you know, how do you develop more, more sources of power? How do you do it in a, uh, in a more sustainable way? So that's obviously going to be a big area for focus for us. So it, it seems like many macro shifts uh, and <clears throat> Africa continues to be part of those shifts uh, and therefore opportunities for, for PE. Luke, I think, and uh, Tokombo and Ziad, maybe we can come over to the GPs for a moment in terms of to your perspective. Uh, and Luke, maybe I can start with you. Yeah, 30 years of investment. You've previously been CEO of Proparco. You've set up your, your own fund. You've been there since the outset. Where do you think this industry is in its evolution? What do you think the trajectory is for the next five to 10 years? And what are some of the things that you have learned that you're taking forward as, as a fund manager? Thank you very much, Richard. Maybe I could summarize what I would like to share with you is that by uh, young hopes and old memories, or better, young hopes fueled by old memories. Uh, we should never forget that the pea industry <clears throat> is a cyclical industry also. There is vintages. And uh, we are shifting, and Clarissa and Nicola said it uh, from a period, uh, or uh, sorry, uh, um, well, they said it at the introduction, uh, of a booming 2010-2012 period where everybody was very bullish about <coughs> Africa to a period where people are a little bit more bearish now, which I think both are excessive. Uh, and as Nicola mentioned with ACA, uh, one of the reasons of the creation of Amethyst and the reason why I decided to, to try to create my own fund was the uh, statistical uh, result of the direct portfolio in Africa of Robarco, who was at this time the best performing portfolio of, the, of Robarco. Uh, on average, between, 2000, between 95 to 2010, more or less, I even before, 90 to 2010, the average moic, gross moic of the African portfolio were, depending on the vintage, between three to four, capturing average IRRs about 20%, gross IRRs about 20%. So it was not the 13 times of ACA. But still, in this country, we did 10 times with Sonatel. Um, so why have we shifted from that period of relatively satisfying yields to the last decade was, it's true, a little bit less... Uh, less performing at the moment to be honest also where outside of africa because of the reduction of the interest rates and the constant growth of the multiples in the north uh, a bit the multiples in the industry have moved from eight times at the beginning of the decade to 12 times today the lbo industry in the north was performing very very well so there was a gap between what could be provided here and the LBO. I think there is a very there is a series of reasons. The first one uh, is that we have had exceptional devaluation in the three biggest countries of the continent: Nigeria, Egypt, and South Africa, uh, and they represent seventy percent, more or less, of the activity. So when you do statistics about Africa, you have always to keep in mind that. And of course, when you have very strong devaluation, I can bet that even Africa. Uh, has difficulty to keep the 13 times in dollar when you have a 300% of devaluation in Nigeria. That's the first thing. The second thing is maybe also that we were in an old model in the industry, uh, and historically the core of the PE funds of the continent were doing capital growth, minority stakes, relatively long-term exit windows. We were thinking that we could stay six, seven years in companies. And it's difficult to extract IRRs if you have this type of, uh, of exit windows. It's also compared to Europe or the US, an industry in Africa where you cannot have leverage because it's difficult to find long-term debt at acceptable rate. Uh, and a lot of proprietary deals without intermediation. Uh, and also a lot of new fund in 2010, and therefore we had to accept at a certain level of uh, Dar Darwin Darwinian selection when you have a lot of new players coming. Um, so 
we have had a learning, collectively a learning curve in the last decades. So what have we learned from this learning curve? So this was your, Richard, your second question. And I think that Clarissa said it very, very clearly yesterday uh, in our, I know that it's, we should not quote what we say in the LPGP, but uh, I will quote her <laughs> in spite of that. The first thing is that doing a P transaction is not doing a deal. Uh, it's doing a partnership uh, with a sponsor, if you are a minority investor, or with the management, if it's a majority investor, where we have to be absolutely sure that there is alignment and alignment at exit. Uh, and sometimes we can forget that. And I think one of the first lessons for me of the last decade is that we should spend a good amount of time to be sure that we are going to provide value <coughs> to the company we invest in. And because this is the best way when we will exit for them to, to help us. So all the things that <coughs> 100 day plans, but all the elements at entry of value creation are absolutely essential. The second thing is that we have to accept, and this is maybe not the DFI uh, for, of course, impact, good reasons, uh, mentality, that it has to be short-term, we have to accept short-term exit windows. It's extremely difficult to extract IRI if you stay seven, eight years, except in very, in telecoms or in very, uh, so if you look at the industry in Europe, average exit windows are between three to four, to four years. It can be choking but funds are buying funds. The, the fourth lesson for me uh, is that maybe we have to accept more, major, more majority <coughs> transaction or at least <coughs> more majority exits. And the fifth one maybe in the countries that could allow it, Morocco, South Africa, Mauritius, where you have a booming financial sector, some reasonable leverage. So to finish, what could be the evolution of the, of the, of the industry? Uh, in the coming years. Um, first of all, I'm coming back again to my vintage effect. Uh, I'm, I think that the cycle of the growth of the multiples in the North is ending. And I'm quite sure, unfortunately, that the growth, that the, the, the era of the zero uh, uh, interest rate in the North is also ending and that interest rates will grow up. So the elbow industry in the North will probably see lower results uh, than in the past and the gap between the real value creation in the north and the financial creation will reduce which gives a very good chance for africa because in africa the core of the of the, of the results are real growth because there is no no leverage and the and and the increase of yields in, of multiples is not the same there would be probably in its good more intermediation in africa uh, more uh, investment bank, uh, a growth of the m and industry, which will help, uh, I would say, uh, give more objectivities to the value. It's a point that Clarissa also made yesterday. And, uh, and also uh, create more liquidity. It would be like in the rest of the world, probably more a majority uh, exit industry uh, and uh, probably more secondaries. In my country, for example, in France, you know, 70 percent of the exists of the industry are in secondaries. Um, there would be some consolidation. We are ending a cycle of consolidation of funds, but there would be new players coming, and yet they are really deeply needed. And the FIs play a fantastic role from that point of view. We need more funds in this continent for having a, to have a, a deeper secondary industry. So DFIs can play a, a, a very big role on that. They, they help create this industry. They help the diversifying the industry, investing in more uh, in more niche, uh, uh, and they can be very instrumental in the next uh, in the next cycle. Uh, and I would finish by saying, and it's not, uh, I hope, uh, wishful thinking. Um, my guess is the next decade, the next decade, would be a good vintage for this continent because the industry is maturing. We have learned a lot in the last decade. And Africa remains the continent, and we see that, Nicolas said it, with the VC industry, where there is structural growth. Uh, and uh, once again, the cycle of artificial boost of the yields in the north is ending. On that also, we should have all memories. It would not be the first bubble. Uh, and this bubble will not exist in Africa. So for all of that, I I'm, I'm still keep my young hopes.
for the for this industry. Uh, and thank you for that. To come with, so yeah, I really want to bring you in uh, to get your idea. The one theme about um, private equity transaction is not a deal. To come I know you're extremely hands-on, um, completely committed to providing capital where it's most needed. Um, your thoughts and thoughts on some of those themes. Thank you, um, Christopher. So I'm going to probably approach it more from a behavioral perspective um, with the way that the industry has progressed over the last couple of decades. Um, so for sure, we've had increased volume and value um, in terms of investments. And I would say that's for good because the growth is good, but it's also been um, for the not so good. What we've seen, particularly um, from our strategy and for context, Alethea Capital started uh, about 15 years ago with the belief that we could invest money well and do it for good, purposefully. So what we now call impact, although that's not what we called it back then, impact investing. What we found is, if I think about our first fintech transaction in 2009, Paga, which now has over 20 million customers um, in Nigeria, there's a heightened competition for transactions and that exuberance is driving a lot of frenzy and valuations are skyrocketing and everybody now has their sights, not just on the next FinTech, um, but also everybody wants to back the next unicorn. And when your taxi driver starts talking to you about their fintech transaction, <laughs> you know there's a problem. So, but also perversely, I mean, obviously that's great for returns, right? If the valuations are doing their upward spiral. But perversely, it's also actually um, preventing some exits because the, the market isn't there deep enough for some of the value of tickets that are coming out. And... I don't want to give away any sort of numbers that we're looking at, but, you know, you, we're finding that we might have to chop up our exit stakes in different uh, businesses so that they can be um, swallowed up by um, pockets of money that exist. Unfortunately, as well, because of the heightened competition and this frenzy, governance is being sacrificed for speed because everyone's like, oh, I need to get in there. And the entrepreneurs are also riding that train and saying, oh, well, you know, uh, I remember receiving an email from um, an entrepreneur recently who said, um, send me your summary um, of your company so that we can review it as we review the investors that we want to um, approach for funding. I thought, okay, that's flipping it on its head. Uh, so, you know, I find that um, they, the, the entrepreneurs, and it's great because there's lots of young energy and everything, but then on the other side, as um, investors, because we're seeing these good stories, which is great, we're then also tripping over um, each other to get into there and willing to move at speed with every aspect of the process in order to be in a transaction. What I'm also, um, when I reflect, what I also see happening is um, a diversity of strategies, which is great. If I look back when um, I started Alethea Capital, uh, like I said, 15 years ago, the idea that we wanted to invest purposely to drive and intentionally to drive financial access, um, 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 bank the unbanked, et cetera, these SMEs, I mean, there are some of my colleagues in the room that would say, this charity work that you're doing, so where's it going to go? But today, it's easier to talk about new strategies. There's more willingness and openness from the investors, and I think that's a good thing. But also, again, like I said in my opening remarks, when we put a label on the can, there's a responsibility to deliver what we say we're going to deliver. And that's where I feel that um, as we progress to the next 20 odd years, we need to pay more um, attention. Um, also, the, we, um, on the role of diversity, 
it's less lonely at these conferences. <laughs> They're more women. Um, <laughs> um, a few of my colleagues from that time have sort of fallen by the wayside, but I remember whenever it was the gala night, you, you had to decide whether you were going to wear a dress and look all fancy or just come plain or, you know, in your suit. And now today, I, earlier I was thinking, gosh, I wonder what tonight's going to look like. So if, <laughs> if the day is anything to go by, it's going to be uh, more colorful and more uh, vibrant. But aside from the fashion side of it, what it means is that that diversity is driving better governance, so which is a good balance to some of the governance that's been sacrificed for speed, and also better decision-making, because there's less groupthink. Um, in fact, if I just think back to some of our board meetings um, and meet um, AGM meetings 20 years ago to today, the diversity of thought is so refreshing. So that's some of the behavioral side. If I just want to, I just want to touch on a couple of, um, I guess, uh, points that come to me if I think about the reflection is that we shouldn't be shy to learn from our failures, which means that we shouldn't be shy to share them. Uh, we need to be more intentional about governance, and I've spoken about that already. We need to be careful about um, pushing scale over substance, and uh, particularly as we see the vibrancy around the VC industry, we need to be more intentional and mindful about that. Uh, we need to be purposeful about being transparent. Everything always comes to the light. And what I found is sunlight is the best disinfectant. Um, we need to avoid groupthink. I've spoken about diversity, and it's great that it's increasing. But like I've said earlier, there's still more work to be done. And obviously, with success comes a tendency for cult-like status and loyalty. So we need to be more mindful of this because, yes, just because a founder or a fund did it okay yesterday doesn't mean that automatically, blindly, they should be back tomorrow. And I include me and all my colleagues in that. We need to be as focused on rewarding hard technical skills as we are on rewarding soft skills, because again, that's why I focused on behavior and leadership. These are the areas um, that we want to focus on. We want to focus on traits that encourage collaboration and a high performance culture. And I'll just end with um, a quote to say, you know, speed isn't everything. And the fact that the elevators to success is broken down, and you're gonna have to get to the top one step at a time. That's great. And see, I'd, I'd like to bring you on, on on all those themes. So please feel free to comment on, on anything that's been said. But again, Africa Invest has <clears throat> been there since the beginning. I think over 150 investments. Um, the things you've learned along the way, how the exit market might have changed. Um, what are your thoughts, given where you are in the industry? Thank you. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, I can really give a testimony. I mean, given the fact that we've been around for so long, so we've seen so many cycles, uh, especially, uh, especially in Africa, be it North Africa, Western Africa mainly, uh, and uh, I think what what we've seen, I mean, during those years, uh, a lot of development, a lot of change into the minds of the sponsors. People, I mean, when we started, I mean, they were comparing us to banks. So uh, basically, we had to explain, I mean, how how private equity work and and the type of value addition that we can bring uh, compared to banks. Um, so that's that has changed a lot. That that's something that is uh, of the past. Uh, we see now uh, sponsors that are that are coming inter, uh, inter, uh, intermediated deals, which is some of us maybe don't like it, but this is also for the benefit, I think, of the uh, of the PE market and uh, the investment uh, the investment uh, environment in, in Africa. So this is also something that has been has been achieved, and and most in most of the countries, or at least the major countries in Africa, I mean, those deals are being intermediated with. Okay, I mean, we can say that the quality of those intermediators are not are not equal, but it's 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 getting there. Um, also, the fact that we 
we we we can hire now experts and management i mean it was very tough i mean when we started uh to get the right people on board because again even in our case we were minority investors even though maybe the the number one i mean remains remains the same i mean at least for the uh, for the other for for the other management uh, top management i mean we need to hire people with a certain expertise that was not that was not available um in addition to the fact of structuring the deals i mean uh, luke was mentioning about uh, about the returns that we're generating i mean we when we look at our deals during the last 30 years because we've been around for 30 years now almost uh i mean most of the growth that has been generated within our deals are coming from from the internal growth of the companies it's I mean, very, very minor also plus coming from the EBITDA, but there is no financial, uh, I would say, reward because we don't, we don't, we don't uh, structure all this through debt. This is maybe something that is changing. We're going to see what's going to happen with the rates. Maybe it's going to become more difficult. But while our, our peers in Europe were borrowing at 1%, I mean, we, we, we borrow at 8, 9, and even 10%, which is, of course, I mean, uh, it doesn't, it doesn't uh, help us uh, at all. Um, also, in terms of um, um, in, in terms of uh, growth story, I mean, when we when we started, it was mo mostly I mean internal growth. We're we're doing more and more build up, and we're seeing also our our colleague doing the same. So basically, trying to build this is something that has been used many times. I mean, the, the really champions in Africa. What we're looking for is to build sustainable companies, uh, actually headed also by Africans, because that's I think our mission at the end of the day. Uh, we need to empower Africans, and we can say that as African Vest, we've been successful in, do, in doing that. That's one of our first uh, thing in our mandate that we, we believe in, even though it hasn't been imposed by any of our LPs. And um, and finally, I would say the exit. I mean, uh, when we started, most of our deals were, I mean, the exits were basically sailed back to the owners. Uh, we had to structure, I mean, the, our exits. I mean, today we see. Uh, we've we've gone through everything I mean, from listing which unfortunately are not the major exit routes because most of our bourses or stock exchanges are not doing well or are not liquid enough uh, but we tried i mean we've done it in, in the most exotic uh, countries uh, but the the major routes remain uh, remain i mean strategic uh, some management buyouts also in addition to secondaries i mean we see secondaries really growing now into the market which which also is a good thing. I mean, some of our LPs are not maybe happy about that, but I think it makes a lot of sense that us as African Invest, we sell to a DPI, for example, who can take the, the company to another level. And actually we did it in many instances to them, to Actis and, and many others. Uh, and we believe that this is, this is also the way to go. And this is the way that would generate additional health. Uh, wealth into into those companies. And this is how, how it works in, 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 the, in, the, in the other parts of the world. So, I think we've been able to to show also to to the world that Africa is not only, I mean, it's it's a lot of impact. But when we generate this impact, it's not uh, it's not uh, uh, at the uh, at the expenses of returns. I mean, we've been able to show that impact also comes with the return. And uh, my colleagues uh, were and and also the uh, the, uh, the former Palin were mentioning about the returns that have been generated. Uh, I think we we've sh we've shown that there is impact. There is also return. And there is sustainability. This is, I think, what we've what we've shown. And I don't know. I want to also ask maybe our our LP friend, uh, friends. I mean, around this panel, I think maybe Africa is the unique continent where you have indigenous GPs that have been successful. I mean, more than international. I mean, and if you look at Latin America, you'll find the Carlisle and the likes. Here, you have strong local uh, GPs, which for me, even though my, some of you might think that. The Carlisle and the TPGs should be also in Africa. Uh, I, I think also the fact that we've been able to generate ourselves, I mean, strong GPs is also a sign of uh, resilience in Africa, but also that Africa is unique uh, in its sense. And we, we're trying to find our own model, which we're not trying to, to copy Asia or Latin America or other parts of the world. And I think so far we've been successful. And I share the optimism of my colleagues. I think the next decade is going to be a great one because of the young generation, because of all of us but many things are going to happen. Thank you for that. And I echo the point about unique African GPs and, and doing things um, differently to the rest. Maybe we could just touch on that for a little bit more before we try and take some questions. And this is a, an all play question. So 
please feel free to answer. But what what do the LPs of the future look like in African PE? What, what do the funds look like? Um, how are things going to change? Clarissa, maybe start with you, just because I know you've got some ideas around closing funds and uh, and how that might be. But please, it, the future of LPs and GPs, what does it look like? Um, thanks, Chris. So in 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 an ideal world, we'd have a more diversified LP base, right? Today, it continues to be primarily DFIs. And DFIs' role is to run yourselves out of a job in certain geographies, which we've not been successful at to date. And so it's really important to get all kinds of investors, institutional investors, sovereign wealth funds, high net worths, to get more involved. That's not just international, outside of Africa, but also the local pools of capital have a really strong role to play across the continent. One of the things that I'd like to see GPs do more of is also present their performance, not just in hard currency, but also in local currency, because that does two things. One, it can differentiate between a manager that has been investing in a stable economy and one that hasn't, where the overall hard currency performance is the same. And so, you know, you're able then to have a conversation around, is it just that you've done nothing, but you happen to have invested in a region where the currency has been stable? versus one that's actually had to you know, deal with significant macro shifts and shocks uh, and has delivered a certain performance. So uh, you know, that will also allow you to have conversations with the local pools of capital and saying, if, if you have, you know, if you're in country X or region Y, uh, you're, you're gonna be able to you know, demonstrate this, this level of performance. Um, on the, the other area is really trying to determine that not all LPs will have interest in all of the different funds that exist across the market. And we need to get better at identifying what is of interest to which type of investor and how do we put those together? Um, and I think we, we, we lack information around what is key, what are strategic priorities as investors, but also when managers are thinking about who are they targeting, instead of thinking about, well, these themes are important for the DFIs and I'm gonna create a product or a strategy that is tailored to that, is just going back to your core principles and what it is that you are good at, you have strengths in uh, and have a track record on and, and do it at that and you know, present that. That might be great for this LP, it might not be great for the other one. And that's okay, that's how you build that, uh, that trust, that long-term partnership. From a GP perspective, I think it is also um, expanding on you know, certain sector-specific strategies, looking at other structures, Although yesterday we also had the conversation on whether is it a structural issue, as Shruti pointed out, uh, or is it about uh, looking at what, what is that core skill set. One thing that um, British International Investment is really keen on is obviously continuing to promote um, product services managers that are tailoring uh, you know, women's needs. Africa has the highest growth of women entrepreneurs in the world. One out of four women in Africa are entrepreneurs. That is a huge number of entrepreneurial potential. Yet these women have no access to capital, very limited access to capital. Men entrepreneurs get six times more capital than women entrepreneurs in Africa today. That means that when they come to grow their businesses, they're unable to do so. And their profit is on average 38% lower than that of their male counterparts because of the lack of access to capital. There's a huge opportunity to identify how to get capital to those individuals. From our perspective, it's not just about you know, the 2X, getting managers to sign up to the 2X initiative, which I think has done lots and will continue to do significant inroads into that space, but also to the point around broader diversity. When we look at where our capital has gone to from an ethnic uh, perspective, you know, black African, owners and leaders are significantly underrepresented in the private equity industry. And we've done an exercise within our firm, but also led by my African colleagues across um, my team and across BII as a whole, thinking about, you know, proportionately, population-wise, is our capital going into black owners and leaders compared to, you know, the business elite across Africa? And there's this huge discrepancy between that. And so at the, at the end of last year, we launched what's called BOLD, the Black Ownership and Leadership Development Initiative. 
to try to encourage and promote capital going to black Africans across the continent. We don't have a target as of yet of how much of our capital we want to be dedicated to that, um, but it is something that every transaction across Sub-Saharan Africa is going to be also uh, looked at to ensure that we are promoting um, development across the continent. So we'd like to see more of that as well to the indigenous point. I've just been told uh, we have two minutes. So on that basis, <laughs> I'm going to try and take two very quick questions from the floor. We haven't covered anything like the things we wanted to cover. Uh, I'm sure that the panelists are available for, for people to ask questions. But if, if there are any quick questions from the floor, we'll take those now. Otherwise, we could create history and end before the finishing time. Go on, of course. To look like, and um, again, what does the GP of the future? I just want to add to what Clarissa said that the LP of the future in Africa also needs to include more African LPs. We need to convene more of that capital. We need to have um, that domestic capital that's partnering with the, the volume of foreign capital that we have because, not just because that's great, but also they also have a stake in our economies and they need to put that money to play there. On the GP side, I agree with Clarissa about diversity. Um, there needs to be more uh, diverse number of female GPs and diverse strategies and in fact, um, when we were raising the Alithea IDF Gender Lens Fund, which is first of its kind across Africa, convincing some of the LPs, some of who are on this stage, that that's a good strategy five years ago was like pulling teeth. But today, Gender Lens strategy is like every, on everybody's uh, lips. And as I said earlier, the more diversity from the LPs to the managers, also will drive diversity in the founder base. So that's what, to me, the LPs and GPs of the future need to look like. Yeah, so I think the point about domestic capital, more uh, um, input, skin in the game from um, local pension funds. And then, as you say, the, the future GP, different strategies, more focused on people. I think on that note, we can probably bring things together to an end. As I said, I'm sure the panelists are available. I'd just like to thank you all personally. Uh, you're very important people. Making your time available for this is a real gift. So thank you very much for that. And I wish everyone a great conference. <laughs>